Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here this morning. Want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online up in Port Perry and beyond. Good morning to you. We all have strong views these days, fake news and politics, race and rights, compromise and middle ground seem to be coming an endangered species. But there are certain things that divide us even more. Last week, millions upon millions of children gathered to get candy. And one of the things that divides us most in North America is what is in my pocket. It is candy corn. There is no in-between ground when it comes to this type of treat. In my opinion, this is God-given and beautiful and wonderful. Chris literally, thank you. That's right, if you're for it. As I was moving it across here, Chris, Pastor Chris, literally just said to me, what are you doing with that most disgusting of candies? And I had no clue what I was about to say. Who likes candy corn here? Would you just, yeah, thank you. Who hates candy corn? See, there, see, there is absolutely no middle ground. We just had a church split and I just began preaching. It's great. There's no middle ground on these things. It's like cilantro. Either you love it or you hate it. See, look what just happened in the room. Port Perry literally divided. Uxbridge and Port Perry. It's done. Then there is pineapple pizza. You're either for it, right, or you are against it. Then there is the great dog and cat war that has started at the beginning of time. Either you're pro-dog or you are pro-cat, and a few of us that are in the middle are used and compromised and not willing to take sides with the rest of you. And then, of course, there is country music. You're either for it or, yeah, twangy people, or against it. Uh, there's no middle ground. And then, of course, there is, because it's Christmas, it's eggnog time. I believe this is God's gift to humanity. Is anyone with me about eggnog? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Actually, amazingly, this morning, someone walked up and gave me an eggnog latte. Unre- thank you. Who, thank you so much. Who's against eggnog in the room? Get out of my church. Out. Totally joking. It's not my church. I just work for someone. Uh, Then, of course, it's the Christmas season, so all Christmas ornaments and Christmas music must be put up November 1st, right? The Americans watching online are like, Thanksgiving is over. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, The others are like, no, it shouldn't go up till December 1st or later. Is that some of you here this morning? Yeah, I I don't even... Unity in Jesus is the only thing that keeps us together. Uh, There's the fake tree versus the real tree conspiracy that I talk about every single year. You real tree people don't care for the earth and you're killing it. Just saying that out loud. No, actually, we're buying fake trees that last 50,000 years. It's okay. I admit it. See, if there's one word that describes our culture, those funny things aside, it is the word polarizing. We live in a time marked by splitting and dividing and differentiating. And if you are honest about what's going on online or what's going on in politics globally, it's so easy for all of us to become suspicious, angry, hypersensitive, even offense, to mark us not only as individuals, but actually to mark us as a church. And yet, it's really hard to be the sent ones this morning. It's really hard to go out, that is to change culture, to be different, to be pilgrims and pioneers if we are continually at war in the church and if we let that culture nuance take us over. 
We've actually been called in many ways to be the opposite of culture, and this is one of the greatest needs at this moment in 2017. This is one of the greatest opportunities we have as Christians. That is to demonstrate to a world that is fragmenting on every single possible wavelength and actually show them there is a real possibility for unity in diversity if you accept Jesus, because Jesus can bring enemies and strangers and friends together to create a family. Does anyone agree with that this morning? It's true. And this is what our world desperately needs to see. Years ago, National Geographic uh, included a photo of a fossil that they had discovered, which is epic. It's unbelievable. It was of two saber-toothed tigers locked in combat, and they died killing each other. One had bitten deep into the leg of the bone of the other, and the thrust trapped them both to a common fate. One bled out, the other couldn't get his tooth out, and thus died of starvation. And the cause of the death of both of these cats is what is so clearly showing why that race actually became extinct. What a profound image for us this morning as we get going. When Christians fight each other in a local church, let alone with each other, everyone loses Paul wrote this in one of his earliest letters in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 15. If you keep biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And by the way, I want to remind you, this is actually written to people that have the Holy Spirit, share a common faith, and all believe in Jesus. In other words, it is possible for Christians to destroy each other because they let division take them over. For the first four chapters in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been trying to wrestle down and maintain unity in this ancient church so this community is not broken and also so this community does not lose witness in this grand urban center called Corinth, which desperately needs the good news of Jesus. And his point is this, if you keep attacking each other, you'll never get on mission to reach out to those who are there, or if those who are out there come in, they will, want, will not want to join this community because the community does not look different than out there. Paul ends his conversation about unity in the strongest of terms. Now, if you've been with us, you're going the strongest of terms. He hasn't been strong yet. Actually, no, he hasn't. Let me, end where, uh, let me begin where I ended last week in 1 Corinthians 4.7. For who makes you different than anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as as though you did not? Paul basically says this to this group of Christians. You're presumptuous and you're ungrateful because you're missing that everything that you hold at the center of your faith is a gift. It's all grace. It's all undeserving. And your bragging and your division and your judgment and your rejection of godly leadership shows you've actually missed the genuine implications of the gospel of grace. If everything is a gift from God and if everything is marked by grace, then your life should be marked by gratitude, not self-promotion, Gratitude, not being self-made. Gratitude, not self-doing and attacking. Grace means humility. Judgment and boasting thinks you've already arrived. You have no need to improve. And Jesus just loves where you're at. But Paul has been writing to this church saying, but look at your relationship with God and each other. It's a freaking gong show. The church is falling apart. You're taking each other to open court and suing each other. You're sleeping with relatives. You're sleeping with prostitutes. You're worshiping demons. And also you can't stand each other. And you're arguing over actually who has more authority. And actually you're turning on each other based on your economics. He says, how can you think you've arrived when this marks your church? Now, at this moment, Paul almost becomes British in his humor. Do you know what I mean by that? Sarcasm beyond sarcasm. He says in verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich and you've begun to reign and, and that even without us. Paul is saying to this church, 
You've rejected my godly leadership and other godly leadership and you've become so self-absorbed. Oh, you think that you have God's blessing, right? Because you've got money. Oh, you think you have God's blessing because, because you have all these amazing spiritual gifts, which you do, healing and prophecy and speaking in tongues. And you think that you have God's blessing because actually you're not suffering these days. And you think you have God's blessing uh, because all this amazing stuff has happened in your life. But you think we don't have God's blessing because we're suffering. And you think that I, as Paul and other Christian leaders, don't have God's blessing because our life doesn't look like yours. Well, then actually you've, you've missed the whole thing. You're filled and rich and wise and powerful and honored and upper middle class and we're the opposite. So here's my question, Paul says to this church. Who looks more like Jesus, a suffering servant or an arrived, non-improving, middle class Christian? Many in that ancient church are like the health and wealth preachers that actually haunt the church all over around, around the world today. Just have enough faith and you'll be rich. Just have enough faith and you'll never suffer. God wants you to be happy and healthy all the time. And if you just claim enough of the Bible, you can have it all now, 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 now. They believed this 2,000 years ago and it's believed today. In other words, they reject the idea that there is no struggle in the middle, no tension. There is no now and not yet. In other words, we're really reigning right now. Many Christians in this ancient church were saying, well, we've got the Holy Spirit, check. We've got all these amazing spiritual gifts we didn't have when we were pagans, check. And basically, we've got money and we're really eloquent. So obviously, we're almost living like it's heaven on earth now. And Paul... Well, honestly, we don't like you very much as a Christian leader because look at how you dress. You actually don't have the latest trend at all and, and you actually suck at preaching. You're a terrible communicator and look at how you live and look at who you are. So in other words, we're blessed and you're not. So Jesus likes us more than he likes you because look at our life versus your life. So actually, why do you have the right to lead me? And how, why do you have the right to actually say anything to me? Because obviously your condition shows me that Jesus doesn't like you as much as he likes me. Paul says, how I wish you'd really begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. Oh, I wish Jesus had come back already, Paul writes, sincerely. Oh, I wish sin was removed and the devil was overcome and there was no more influence and I wish the new heavens and the new earth were down here now and, and I would be reigning because all Christians, the Bible say, will reign. No more death, no more mourning, no more suffering, no more devil, but look around. You, you might be having a great season as a person, but the best has not yet come at all. So actually, let me just inform you and let me be a little blunt. You're not reigning at all and neither are we. See, Paul is now exposing the last great issue in this church that was breaking unity and actually resisting and stopping godly leadership. They were, everyone ready, embarrassed. They were embarrassed by Paul's suffering let alone his inability to speak really well as a preacher, let alone it says in the, in the scriptures that Paul, though he supported all the gifts, didn't have many charismatically power-oriented gifts. So now Paul throws it all on the table. He says, well, it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of a procession like those who are condemned to die in the arena. That's gladiatorial language. And we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. Well, Paul says, look, everyone, I just want to share this with you. This is actually God's will that we're suffering. And we're actually suffering, not just because we're suffering for suffering's sake, we're suffering for the gospel. This is about the whole universe. Don't look away. Don't be embarrassed. The whole of the loyal angelic army is watching this too. 
So you're at home in your nice four-bedroom home with three cars thinking that that's a sign of God's blessing and you can speak in tongues and it's translated so that's a sign of God's blessing and you've got lots of money and that's a sign of God's blessing. But is that where God's power is all the time? See, Paul's whole life is shadowed by one thing, the cross. And again, this is reinforcing the truth that we found in week in and week out, that in weakness and in folly and in suffering, what the world is actually embarrassed by, what Corinth and Toronto actually runs away from, what Corinth and Toronto laughs at, actually what middle class and upper middle class people who have money and education think is stupid or run away, that actually is where the power of God is found. Remember all the way in back in week two, 1 Corinthians 1.8? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Like I said in that week when I raised up a cross in front of you, I said, look at the cross. When, when you see a cross on a church building or at a graveside or worn by someone, most of us have a positive association with that symbol. It's inspiring, it's heartwarming, and it's hope-giving, it's eternal life-securing But 2,000 years ago, to anyone, Jew or non-Jew, anyone within the Roman Empire, it was terror-inspiring, it was trauma-inducing, it was the worst, most scary, most humiliating way to die. It was capital punishment used only for the worst criminals and insurrectionists, and Roman citizens were never given that punishment. Celebrating the cross like I shared that week is like celebrating a firing squad. Saying there's good news in the cross is like saying there's good news in the noose. Saying salvation is in the cross is saying like salvation is found in an electric chair. Saying I love the cross and singing songs about the cross is like saying, oh, I love what God has done through the public act of beheading. Yet 2,000 years ago, Christians are walking around in Corinth and in Jerusalem and Antioch and all sorts of other places saying that actually the hope of the world and salvation is found in the most gory, humiliating, bloody, traumatic, and most weak ways to die. And this is what I wrote, and I'm going to repeat it again. In the middle of that self-made, grand, multicultural, multi-faith, self-promoting city, Corinth, does that sound like Toronto too? The message of Christianity is based on the cross, and the response, Paul says, is obvious. Foolish, scandal, stupid, idiotic, intellectually not viable, religiously wrong, backward, downright disgusting, offensive, curious. But see, here's what Paul's point has been, and this is the connection. God's real work has nothing to do with beauty. God's real work has nothing to do with being on trend. God's real work has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with being good enough or spiritual enough or religious enough or tough enough. Actually, it has nothing to do with your savings account. It has nothing to do with political power. It has nothing to do with knowing the right people in the room. Actually, it never comes from down here ever. Salvation is found in the physical death and the physical resurrection of a Jewish wandering peasant who died the worst type of death ever invented by the human mind. Now here's the connection. Everyone ready? The church in Corinth had embraced this. They had understood the foolishness of the cross. They had accepted who Jesus was. And then they said this, the humiliation of the cross and the act of the cross and the suffering of the cross is over. It happened back then 30 or 40 years ago with Jesus, and now it does not need to mark my life at all. I get the benefits of the cross, but I don't need to look like the cross because Jesus did that for me. I can live a life any way I want. Have you heard this somewhere before? Paul is saying, though, hold on a second. What do you mean your life doesn't need to reflect the cross or look at the cross at all? Paul is saying, actually, my weakness, this is him speaking, 
is the same weakness that God decided to work in and through Jesus. Jesus' weakness was his greatest strength. His lowliness, his disregard, his torture, his humiliation was actually given so we sinners could be saved. Now, Paul's not saying it's wrong they're blessed. He's not saying it's wrong that you're blessed. He's not saying it's wrong that you have money or a good job or you can speak well or you can heal people in Jesus' name. Here's his point. You're prideful, you're ungrateful, you're comfortable, And you actually think that we don't have God's blessing because of our suffering, but actually we're closer to Jesus than you are. If you read church history, it's striking. During the Council of Nicaea, one of the most significant and needed councils that ever took place in 2,000 years of church history, out of the 318 delegates that gathered that day, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye, a hand, or did not limp because they had not been tortured for Jesus. Paul says with utter sarcasm, we're fools for Christ, but you're so wise in the Messiah. Oh, oh, we're so weak and you're so strong as a church. You're so honored and, and we're so dishonored. Paul says, are you joking me? How, how in, in four years have you moved so far from what I've taught you? Paul moves from irony and are you kidding me to just plain speak, straight talk. So he says, fine, you're rich. Yep, and you're well-dressed, and you're on trend, and you're well-fed, and you're powerful, and honored, and wise, and rich, and actually, you could do a presentation way better than I could, and some of you even have some spiritual gifts that are pretty amazing, but to this hour, uh, we go hungry and thirsty, and we're in rags, and we're brutally treated, and we're homeless, and we work hard with our hands, and we're cursed, and we bless people, and when we're persecuted, uh, we endure it, and when we're slandered, we actually answer kindly, We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. In other words, here's what Paul says. We're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus' teaching is marking us not at the best times of our life, but at the worst times. We actually bless those who curse us. And we endure persecution. Why? Remember last week? Because actually Paul and his friends say, I actually so want Jesus's praise and not yours. I want to endure. Remember, when Jesus started our movement, he gave the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of our movement. And it started very closely like this in Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's Jesus. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Paul in this moment is piling on these really, really strong metaphors one after another, and he ends up by saying, listen, we're just the scum of the earth. This is how it reads in Greek, by the way. We're like the dirt that you scrape off your body in the shower. We're like the leftover food on the floor you throw in the garbage bin. We're like the dog crap that's left on the lawn and never picked up. Now, why in the world would Paul, this great theologian, this leader, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, use such powerful over-the-top images Because the wisdom of God and the foolishness of God is wiser than the best of human wisdom. And much of the time, God's greatest move is found in and among suffering. Now, many of us are sitting here this morning, or I'm standing, you up in Port Perry, many of you watching online, and we either have immigrated to the West or we grew up here. We're comfortable, we're safe, we have middle-class privileges, And when we read this, this is threatening. And by the way, this is why this book is so relevant to us because Corinth and Toronto are almost identical. Paul is saying suffering should not be avoided necessarily. 
Here's how Peter said it to another group of churches. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. See, suffering for the gospel, not suffering for suffering's sake, suffering for the good news of Jesus and his kingdom is the average Christian life. And Jesus' example, Peter says, is the, is the example we follow. Jesus' half-brother, James, wrote it this way, and James 1, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters. When you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Years after 1 Corinthians was written, Paul, sitting in a jail cell in his late whenever, 60s, 70s, 80s, however he was, he wrote these most striking of words that I've preached many times before. Remember, Paul had already been into the heavens in a vision. His conversion moment was with the living Jesus. He had suffered more than probably anyone sitting in this room or anyone listening online, and he knew the scriptures better than any of us sitting here. And yet at the end of his life, sitting in a jail cell, writing a book on joy, he said, I want to participate in Jesus' suffering so I know him better. So when there's genuine suffering for Jesus, this is a guaranteed place of encounter between Jesus and his people. Now, does this mean that we need to go out and look for suffering? Does this mean that if we're not beat up for Jesus, in other words, when we're not spiritual? No, we're not commanded to look for suffering. Paul is not teaching here, go out in the street and yell lots, and if you get punched, Jesus likes you more. No. Paul himself, by the way, fled from moments of persecution. So did Jesus, because Jesus said the time was not right. Suffering doesn't make you more spiritual. But here's Paul's point in this moment. Paul's real point is walking with Jesus can include extreme suffering, and we should never be embarrassed ourselves or think God's blessing is not with us or he is not with us when we suffer. This local church, this very middle-class, wealthy, prominent church was embarrassed by Paul because they had started connecting four years after his conversation, comfort and blessing with God's approval. And Paul says, my life looks way more like Jesus's than yours does at this moment. Now the, the tide turns at this moment in the text. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, my dear friends, listen, I'm really frustrated And I'm a little rightly angry, but I don't want to shame or humiliate you. I want to warn you and correct you and appeal to you. Dear children, listen, I love you so much. But see that phrase, dear children, that's not a dig, but it really actually brings it home. This goes back to last week. Paul is saying, I actually have the right to lead you. I have the right to guide you. I have the right to speak to you because here's the issue. You're just kids. You think you're old and you think you're wise and you think you're connected, but actually you're just little children in the faith. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. He says, look, I'm your spiritual dad. Would you stop pushing me away like a really angry 14-year-old teenager who thinks they know better? I'm your father in the faith. Now, you see that word guardian? If you're a person taking notes for Connect Group this week, would you highlight it, circle it, and write this down? See, I didn't know this until I studied it this week. Guardians were as another form of slaves. Slaves that were actually bought to teach the children of wealthy people. And so he's saying, oh, you've got lots of teachers among you, but I'm not just like a common slave who's actually hired to teach you the right things or actually help you grow up. I'm your dad. Now, in that culture, if you had a father and you knew him 
especially if you were male, you would follow in his vocation. If he's a baker, you're a baker. If he's a politician, you become a politician. So in other words, Paul is coming not like a boss, not like a dictator, but like a really good father. And he's saying with boldness and humility to this whole church, you actually have to listen to me. Now this exposes something else very important this morning. We all need to be led. We all need authority structures in our lives. We know we need them, but if we were honest this morning, none of us really like them. Anyone want to say amen to that, truthfully? Yeah, you're all liars. When we get pulled over by the cops, no one goes, I'm so excited I got pulled over by the police for speeding. Right? Some of you have been to court and you know you shouldn't have gone, even as Christians, because you broke the law. Now, we all don't like getting a ticket, but we absolutely love the idea. We live in a culture where we overall feel safe and actually the police remove the idea of anarchy from us. If you've ever lived in a country where there's genuine anarchy, it is terrifying. And so we don't like the ticket, but we love the safety. It's like none of us love paying taxes here this morning, but we all actually like roads that we drive on. So we want to not pay taxes, but we want the roads. And by the way, if one of you is about to start tweeting or complaining about the roads in this country, let me just take a side note for a second. I've lived or traveled to 40 countries. You have no clue what you have on the road system here unless you travel. It's the same with healthcare. Yes, I know the lines can be 24 hours, but it's a lot better 24 hours than dying when there's no healthcare at all. Just as a side note, be incredibly thankful for what you have in this country this morning. We have, yes, you can clap to that. We should be very thankful for what we have. So we don't want to pay the taxes, but we want the health care. We don't want to pay the taxes, but actually we, we, we want the roads. It's like parents and t- of teenagers and homes. I'm 14. I know better than you. Don't you know who I am? I'm becoming independent. And in the same breath, they're like, so I'm going to go to the bed that I actually don't provide. I still am going to live in your house. I still want pizza money for, you know, Friday night. And can you drive me somewhere? See, here's what the point is. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. You cannot have the benefits of authority without the authority over you. And Paul says, I have the authority over you. C.S. Lewis, that great atheist who became a great follower of Jesus from Cambridge and Oxford, thinking about his conversion moment, talks about this so brilliantly, so succinctly. What mattered most, he wrote, of all, was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed a deeper hatred than the word interference. But when I checked out Christianity, Christianity placed at the center what seemed to be a transcendental interferer, God. And if that picture was true, then there was no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost of my soul, which I could surround with a barbed wire fence and with a guard and say no notice or no admittance. And that's what I wanted. Just some little area, however small, which I could say to all other human beings and to God, this is my business and mine alone. By the way, this is why so many people never accept Jesus in the end. If you're a seeker here this morning, listen closely. Why so many people refuse to accept Jesus is not because they don't think he existed or not because he's not loving or they're not actually awed by a sacrifice because Jesus is Savior and what? Lord. There is no place where he is not king. And yet, even for us who are Christians, we still don't like the interference. We don't want to be led. We don't want to be told yes and no, here, not there. And Paul says, my dear children, I urge you, imitate me. Now, either this is unbelievably prideful or he has the right to say it. Later, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. 
Be like me. I'm a good father. I'm walking and following Jesus. My life is consistent with Jesus. My, mark, my life is marked by servant leadership. And your life is marked by uh, lawsuits and, and, and boasting and pride and worldly wisdom. And, and actually, you have right thinking at points, but you don't have right behavior. So for this reason... He says in the next verse, and and what is the reason? For all the craziness that's going on in this church, bad theology, bad lifestyle, division, pitting leaders against each other. He says, look, I'm done. I'm going to send Timothy to you, my son whom I love. He's faithful in Jesus. He's going to remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. With all this trouble going on, I'm going to send Timothy. He's a good teacher. He loves Jesus. He's got good character. He's going to correct your wrong belief. He's going to bring you back to right behavior. And he's going to deal with disunity. No more gossip. No more slander. Too much is at stake. What's at stake? Oh, right. All of Corinth is lost for eternity. And you're supposed to be Jesus to them. And yet you're turning on each other. Now, some of you have become arrogant. As if I'm not even coming to you, Paul says. But I will come to you very soon if Jesus is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. Whoa, can you imagine getting this letter from a pastor? Paul directly warns the troublemakers in the church, some of them so-called leaders, and says, enough is enough. The divisions are done. I'm not going to let you divide Jesus' church anymore. I'm not going to allow slander any longer. Don't forget what I've already shared with you. And by the way, this goes back to last week. 1 Corinthians 4, 1. This then is how you should regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Remember we learned last week that that word servant was actually another type of slave that in a major wealthy household in Rome or in Corinth, that the master would buy a slave who was profoundly smart, intellectual, actually had property management skills, and he would give them full authority to run the house while the master was gone. In other words, this slave who owns nothing, his word is equal to the master's word. And Paul comes along and he says, look, this is actually what pastors are. This is what I am. I am the one who owns nothing. While the master's gone, though, my word is his word. His word is my word. And actually, I have the right to lead you and teach you. Remember, we found out last week, 1 Corinthians 4.2. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust prove faithful. In other words, I do have Jesus' backing, but I can't go off the deep end. So Paul says this near the end at 1 Corinthians 4.20. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What does he mean by that? This has been really mispreached in a lot of churches. Don't miss what Paul is saying. What was Corinth famous for? You became someone through your intelligence your thoughtfulness, your hard work, because you're physically strong, because you're beautiful, because you're wise or educated, because you have lots of Twitter followers, because you have amazing communication skills. You move from a nobody to a somebody by your achievement, self-sufficiency, self-congratulating, self-reliance, self-promotion, self-built. The kingdom of God, though, Paul says, the reign and rule of God, which Jesus introduced, is not through smooth talk. The kingdom of God is not through your own intellectual ability, your self-sufficiency. It has been brought through powerful teaching, the word of God, and through signs and wonders, the power of God, and through the suffering God and the humility of God. In other words, the power isn't found in where Corinth's core values are. It's not found in smooth talk or having it all together. It's found in other places. So what do you prefer? That I come to you with a rod of discipline Or shall I come to you in love and with a gentle spirit? This is a leader stepping in and saying, I'm going to act like Jesus. You're like, really? That doesn't sound like Jesus. Oh, yes, it does. 
Think about who Jesus really is. Jesus is uncreated. Jesus is in the Trinity. He is, he is the second person of the Trinity. He, he is God who has taken on flesh. Fully God and, and fully man. It was Tim Keller, that great church leader in New York, that wrote this. He says, It is the paradoxical kingliness of Jesus that brings so much to our attention. Jesus is majestic and meek at the same time. He is holy and humble. He is bold and sweet. He is brave and meek. He is lamb-like and lion-hearted. He is courageous and compassionate all at the same time. In other words, Paul says, I am going to be both of these at once. And I'm not going to let things fester anymore. Actually, since I love you and you are my children and I'm marked by love, I'm going to deal with all this stuff so the witness of Jesus is not lost. By the way, Paul refuses to let things lie because, because he knows it will lead to destruction. In other words, here's what he does. He chooses not to be a people pleaser and he actually chooses not to avoid a situation because it's harder. You all know this. This is true. It doesn't matter whether it's church or in family or in life. When you choose not to deal with an issue, it becomes a greater issue later, correct? Any issue we're facing in this church now is because we chose not to address it earlier when it was smaller. Paul says, we're not going to do this here anymore. Because actually, so much is at stake. Your joy, your freedom, and a whole city's witness that we're done. Now, when you read this correspondence, this is a pretty intense moment. And you're like, so is like Paul writing this to us? Not necessarily, but let's find out what Jesus might be saying to all of us this morning as we end. Here's the first thing we all need to catch and lean into this, would you please? The power of God is found in weakness. And by the way, this should be unbelievably freeing to all of us. Let me go back to 1 Corinthians 2.4. My message, Paul wrote, and my preaching was not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. So your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. In other words, remember what I said? We didn't accept the message of Christianity because it's just intellectually viable alone, though it is. Yes, the, the message of the cross deals with every human need. As Ravi Zacharias says, it deals with origin and meaning and morality and destiny. Yes. It's logical? Yes. It's hope-inspiring? Yes. Historically defensible? Absolutely. But Paul says, you did not accept the message of the cross because I was able to put the puzzle pieces together. Your faith is not based on my intellectual ability. It's based on the Holy Spirit's power. You didn't accept the, the faith, and this is true for us too, because of style or eloquence or superior knowledge. It wasn't your understanding or your education. It wasn't even your posture. You're not more open than your neighbor necessarily. Ultimately, Paul says, God's word and God's will and God's wisdom are given through God's spirit. And that's the point. I just want to repeat this again. God the Father called us and we didn't call him. Jesus thought about us when he died on the cross. We weren't looking for him. The Holy Spirit revealed all that God has done for us and that is how we were saved. And Paul says, and that is why we have unity with each other because we have a same calling, a same spirit, and the same savior. And Christians reject the idea that we can save ourselves and invent meaning for our lives. And by the way, that's a core value of Toronto if you haven't caught it. But here's the freeing part. Beauty, or lack of it, wealth, power, staying young, or education, or being culturally relevant, or always being on trend, can never be the starting point or end point for a church. It can never actually own or control a Christian. Why? Because that's not where God's power is ever found. God's power is found in his word. God's power is found in his spirit. 
God's power is found in godly suffering. God's power is found in generosity and forgiveness. See, let our witness be around these things and let us as a church be free. Look at who God decided to use in the Bible. God chose David. David was the runt of his family. No one cared about him. He was out with stinky sheep. All the good-looking brothers were present. What did the prophet Samuel say? God doesn't look on the outside. He looks where? At the heart. Peter was an uneducated fisherman who had religious terrorism leanings. Mary was a nothing teenager who would live and die and no one would care. Matthew was a corrupt tax collector who was actually not only ripping off his own people, he was working with occupation forces in Jerusalem at the time. And here's the real kicker, very few pastors preach. And the Old Testament says in prophecy that Jesus was ugly. Our Savior was never good-looking. Our Savior was never on trend. Now, is it wrong to be beautiful? No, if you are, God bless you. The rest of us, I have to work that out. Here's the point. The power of God is not found in what goes away. And that should give everyone in this church a huge sigh of relief. We don't have to be like Toronto to walk in the power of God. We don't need to be like Corinth to walk in the power of God. And that should give us boldness because actually the things that pass away don't matter and the things that matter will last. It doesn't matter what you look like. Our whole culture is obsessed about what you look like. Jesus says, I made you just the way I made you. And by the way, my power isn't resident in how young you are or sexy you are. And by the way, for all of us getting older, take hope. It doesn't matter if you get older in our culture because the power of God is not found just in 16-year-olds. It's found in every Christian who walks with Christ. It doesn't matter if you're pretty. It doesn't matter if you have learning disabilities or you don't. Fill in the blank. God's power is expressed in humility and weakness and his word and in suffering. And all Christians can participate in that and know confidently that God's going to show up every single time. That's amazing. And that's why we get to be free. And that's why we shouldn't be afraid to witness. And that's why we shouldn't be afraid to be countercultural because all of our friends are trying to stay on trend and all of our friends are obsessed with staying young. All, listen, that's fine. But at the end of the day, we need to show them there's something better than it and it translates beyond all this stuff and his name is Jesus and it's better than what the world is offering. And Paul says, you as a Corinthian church are obsessed by all the wrong things. You're embarrassed by my life, but where my life is going is where God's power is found. Here's the second thing. It's what Paul, the drum Paul has been banging. Church unity is critical for witness. Let me just say this again. To be countercultural in Toronto, to be countercultural in Canada, to be countercultural in the right way in North America right now is actually how we love each other. Because love is an endangered species. We've talked about this, but let me just say it again. It doesn't mean we're all going to get along in this place. Jesus is the one who brought us together, not us. <laughs> the candy corn people are together. It's a miracle, right? But just think about this. Next time you're really angry with someone at church, you don't like their style, their views, their politics. You have a different racial background, so it's, it's not as easy to understand. Just, let me just say this again for all of us. Next time you're angry and you're having a three o'clock in the morning conversation, you know what I'm talking about? Just say this out loud, not in your head, out loud. That person was elected by God the Father before the beginning of time like me. That person was thought about by Jesus while he was dying on the cross. That person has the same Holy Spirit that I have. That person is my brother and sister forever in eternity. 
After you've said all of that and got your common ground together, then go speak to them about your issues. Why? Because here's what the devil's going to try in this church. We're growing baptisms, new sites, all this stuff. Ready? If he can cause disunity in this church, he'll break our witness in a moment. Our unity, it doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we all agree. But how we treat each other and how we love each other and how we honor our leaders and yet challenge, all of that's going to matter because all these seekers are saying, are you really different than the rest of Twitter and Instagram? And the answer better be yes. And the answer is only found in how we deal with relationships differently. You can't make peace with everyone, but you can be open. So number one, don't forget where the power is. And number two, don't forget that our decisions of how we work with each other actually will affect our unity and our witness as we go out to Toronto. That desperate, remember, Toronto is going to spend eternity without Jesus. And their salvation and redemption is more important than our squabbles. And here's the last thing. Follow my example as I follow Christ's. Just think about that right there. Can you see that? Paul says, I actually have the right to tell you what to do because actually I'm following Christ. You cannot give what you do not have. You cannot lead where you've not been. You cannot offer what is not in your hand. Last night as I was praying for us this morning, I was doing my devotions and I was struck that this was the prayer in the devotional I used that I prayed last night. Isn't this striking? Saving God before my very eyes, visibly portray Jesus Christ crucified, humbled before the cross, seeing your suffering. May I die to myself and come alive in you. And as I find life in your death, let me taste your joy in my sorrow. Isn't that unbelievable that that's this last night and this is what I'm preaching this morning. Here's all I want to say to all of us myself included, as a fellow journeyer, struggle, making mistakes all the time, is this. Follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. There just has to be this ongoing commitment that we say our lives need to be marked by Jesus. And that we walk in this and we're available to this and we don't shy from suffering if it's there and we're not embarrassed, we we just go. And here's all I just want to say. At the beginning of this year, we gave out this book to the whole church, fully devoted followers of Jesus. And we did this so discipleship, following Jesus, got unbelievably clear for everyone. So all of us could have common language, common script, and all of us also could evaluate where we are. And here's what, I'm just not a plug for the church or some promotion. I just want to say this. This is unbelievably critical because we have to make the decision that we are going to follow Christ. So when we have influence on others, we actually will have the ability to say, you follow me like I follow Jesus. And this is why this has been given out to our church to truly grow in our following of Jesus. Because when you start following Jesus more and more, you will have authority to say to people, no matter your age, follow me like I'm following Christ. So just hear this as I end. Be encouraged where the power of God is and don't waste your time in other places. Don't forget that our unity is critical to our witness and actually commit ongoingly, day by day, to become more like Jesus. So when you speak to your kids or your friends or seekers or relatives or your connect group or you're serving on a team, you can actually say with authority more and more, no, you follow me like I'm following Christ.
that authority is much more beautiful than any title you could be given on any team. So Lord, hear our prayer this morning as you continually speak and invite and, and rebuke and encourage. Keep doing this among us, we ask. Lord, set a lot of people free today from a lot of things they actually don't need to worry about anymore. Give boldness in our church that actually is growing, but give more boldness. Continue to confront any of us that are causing disunity in our families or across this church. Lord, continue to work that out so there's freedom. And lastly, we pray all together, Lord, that you would continue very strongly to mold us like Jesus in a way that is not preachable, but is demonstratable beyond this moment. So we just ask this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said... Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.